Welcome back to the Macro Ball Podcast. Thanks again for joining. This is episode seven, being recorded on the 13th of February, 2022. Uh, this is a reactionary podcast with some analysis to the trade deadline, which was fantastic, exciting, um, breathtaking, all wrapped up into a few days. And uh, there's a lot of shrapnel. There's a lot of leftover to go through, to sift through. Uh, lots of pieces to pick up and put together for this puzzle we call the trade deadline and we call NBA rosters. Um, it's just the, the way contracts have evolved, the the nature of the financial side of the NBA makes a lot of these deals puzzling, um, but also fun to talk about and hypothesize. But nonetheless, we had a lot of great deals and a lot of exciting stuff happened in the NBA. I wanted to start with three important takeaways that I noticed from the deadline and that I think you should be aware of. And I also have three losers and three winners from the deadline. That's uh, just teams, not specifics beyond that. And finally, we'll be finishing off with the spicy take of the week. So before we get into the trades, uh, just a quick tidbit on the Utah Jazz situation. Now, I spoke about the Utah Jazz in episode four of the podcast about how the Jazz looked. They looked pretty good, honestly, to start the year. They weren't a championship team in my view. And uh, you can go back and listen to the episode if you want more on that. Um, but there was a lot of buzz around the NBA at the time. They weren't getting enough credit or praise, which is fine. Uh, sometimes teams need their flowers and they need to be credited when credit is due. Um, they were playing great basketball at that point. That was about a month, maybe a month and a half into the season. Um, but I did look over the team at the time and the roster. I just didn't see anything special about it. Uh, aside from the fact their offense was humming along at a nearly historic level, statistically, it doesn't necessarily translate to playoff success. If that's the ultimate goal of the team, uh, I just wasn't impressed. Now, recently, we've seen several reports from inside sources in the NBA that their two best and you could say most important players, Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, uh, have had building tension in the locker room. Uh, tension was mounting and continued to grow. And things weren't looking great at the moment, basically in general, on the team, including if we consider the Joe Ingles injury and what that means for the Jazz. Uh, now, I'm not saying I was right about them not being a championship team or the fact that they could turn it around, because obviously they can. There's still a lot of time. Uh, there's about 30-odd games left in the season. And given their standing in the West, uh, I think they could turn it around if they really pulled together. But the constant reports about the discontent and the tension between the top two players is not going to give anyone confidence in their future together and confidence in the team's path to success. So to cover this off quickly, I'm anticipating the Jazz will explore trade options for at least Rudy Gobert, despite his obvious defensive presence and importance to the team and identity. Uh, they may feel it's time to go in a different direction as a team. There's only so many times you could run back Rudy Gobert and everybody else, including Mitchell. And there had actually been reports, many of you have probably heard this before, uh, that Donovan Mitchell would be interested in joining a New York team, either the Knicks or the Nets, in the near future. So we could ultimately see Donovan Mitchell request a trade, which could break out into all-out chaos for the team. But either way, look, this team is due for a shakeup. Things change very quickly in the NBA in most cases. 
especially for a small market like the Utah Jazz. Uh, they will probably shake things up. And the first step probably involves a little bit of heartbreak in the playoffs, and then the dominoes start to fall from there. Okay, so the trade deadline, as I said, was very exciting. Uh, we actually seemed to see Shams, Sharania of the Athletic, take over the uh, top dog spot from Woj. There was a lot of Shams bombs, more so than Woj bombs. Woj was still pitching in a lot, um, but credit to Shams. He was on the ball uh, for much of the trade deadline. So I just wanted to go over a few of the most important things that I noticed, or some of the most important things, not the most important. So just some observations and uh, things I think you should keep an eye on based on what happened at the trade deadline. So first of all, the Portland Trailblazers finally decided to embrace the tank. Uh, they officially signaled the alarm that the team was going to head that direction with two trades that stripped down the entire roster, basically. The first deal between the Blazers and the Clippers actually put the Blazers under the luxury tax, which probably gave a lot of indication as to what direction the team the ownership group wanted to go. Uh, and this was a tough deal on one hand because they gave away two outstanding role players in Norman Powell and Robert Covington. But given the mediocre performance we'd seen from the team this season so far, uh, you know, despite injuries and things like that, it's understandable that the team has finally accepted to go in the tanking direction. And despite taking the obvious loss in this trade talent-wise, the deal does make some sense for Portland when you consider their situation holistically. The Blazers were interested in shifting their financial situation into a more positive direction instead of trying to operate from mediocrity and from being in the red. Um, I think they just wanted to clean things up a bit. And the second trade they made with the Pelicans uh, was staggeringly lopsided when you really look at it. But obviously... It was, on per on, it was done on purpose, and it removed all doubt that the Blazers would head in the tanking direction. Uh, this was the deal that saw CJ McCollum shipped to New Orleans. And actually, on a positive note there, this trade landed Portland a nearly $21 million trade exception that expires next year. So that should come in handy at some point for the team uh, trying to make a move. Um, but now that we have these two trades out of the way... Uh, when you look at their roster right now, it's honestly a pretty sad scenario. And funny enough, I believe they've won their last two games. They beat the Lakers and they beat somebody else today. It's slipping my mind right now. Um, but the roster right now is the currently injured Damian Lillard, Yusuf Nurkic, Anthony Simons, Josh Hart, Justice Winslow, Eric Bledsoe, Thomas Sadoransky, Cody Zeller, uh, and then a whole host of other young players. Nasir Little and Joe Ingles are both out for the season. Ingles probably isn't sticking around. Nasir Little offers a little bit of uh, potential, something to look forward to in the future for Blazers fans. Um, but basically, this team has no chance of doing anything at this stage of the season. Um, they may win a few games here and there, but they're not going to make any further noise. The team is going in this direction. Blazers fans should probably buckle up for a little bit of a bumpy ride from here on out, even for a couple seasons potentially. Uh, because this is the first time since 2012 when they drafted Lillard that the team is going in a downward direction. So this has led me to think about what would be the move to offload Damian Lillard. And of all the moves that I've been thinking about, a move for Russell Westbrook would actually make sense for Portland. Not because Westbrook makes them a better team, but because he will be an expiring contract next season. 
Uh, and obviously the Blazers would want more than just Westbrook, probably first round picks. Um, but I think the Blazers would benefit from grabbing Westbrook if they're worried about finances and flexibility because he is a expiring contract next season. He's still a decent player. With him as the number one guy, he's going to put up stats. He's, you know, he's going to pass the ball to guys and get people involved. I'm not saying this is championship winning basketball, but uh, getting Westbrook isn't the worst thing you could do. And you also get to make your superstar, or at that point, former superstar Damian Lillard happy by trading him to a, a championship situation. So I would keep an eye on that, potentially. And um, I actually hope it happens. I think Lillard would fit in nicely alongside LeBron and Davis if that scenario is still available at that point in time. And to that point, a side note, I would say less than two years ago, Damian Lillard seemed like a lock to be on the same team where he started his career for the rest of his career. In fact, I would have put him in the same breath as players like Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, even the likes of Tom Brady prior to him moving to Tampa Bay. Uh, these are the type of players that you never would have envisioned leaving where they started because of loyalty, because of moments that they've created with the fans. You know, Lillard has multiple playoff game winners, series winners, which is just an incredible thing to have on your resume. Um, and I, I just felt like Lillard was going to be a blazer for life. There's still a chance he is. Who knows what direction the team will truly go, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. As I said, they signaled the alarm that they're blowing it up, and that's probably what they're going to do. The next observation I had made here is the Phoenix Suns have a nearly perfect championship roster. Yes, you heard it here first. The Suns weren't expected to make any splashy moves at the deadline, but instead of sitting around, they capitalized on a couple little opportunities here and there. They needed a perimeter stopper off the bench, so no problem. They traded Jalen Green for Torrey Craig. Uh, Craig was on the finals team last season as a key role player and defensive specialist that could also knock down threes. And the performances this season of JaVale McGee, Bismack Biombo, uh, they made Green expendable, who's still a young player, who still shows flashes of potential when given the opportunity. It's actually a nice pickup for the Pacers. Um, but this trade made a lot of sense for the Suns, who are obviously motivated to win and win big this season. Uh, they also picked up Aaron Holiday, um, which may not impress the average NBA fan, but Holiday offers point guard depth as an expiring contract. Um, so that gives them the depth of Chris Paul, Cameron Payne, Aaron Holiday, very nice pieces in the backcourt. So with these two subtle moves, the Suns have basically moved all their chips into the middle. Uh, injuries aside, I don't think this team has any excuse anymore. They should be the favorites to win this season, all things considered. Even when you look at the Warriors and how they're playing and how they like to, to step things up in the playoffs. You also have the threatening Grizzlies who have been on the rise and have really been spectacular in the last month or maybe two months. Um, the Suns, to me, are a step ahead of both of those teams. The way they perform on a nightly basis, the way they're adaptable. Um, they've been missing Aiton for a big chunk of the season, and he was one of the best defensive big men in the league when he was healthy. So even considering injuries, which are almost guaranteed to happen, I think this team has put themselves in a nice place where... They're nicely insulated against losing certain players on the team, and that should make them a very malleable team in the playoffs, which they already were. Um, but just a small move like Torrey Craig, I think, puts them over the top for championship favorites. And my last um, observation of sort, can Marvin Bagley finally turn it around? Uh, the Pistons took a small gamble 
in the trade deadline. Uh, they added the often injured Marvin Bagley III, who was famously or maybe infamous, infamously drafted by the Sacramento Kings ahead of none other than Luka Doncic. Those two will forever be tied, unfortunately. And say what you want about drafting for fit, as the Kings did at the time. Talk all you want about Bagley's potential, etc. There is almost no chance that that draft selection will ever have a revisionist history where we look back and think it wasn't such a bad choice after all. Vladi Divac deserves a lot of shame for that pick. He actually reportedly knew Doncic's family. Um, there's no way he hadn't seen highlights of him performing in Europe as the European League MVP. So, I mean, again, I don't want to go into uh, a bashing of Vladi Divac. That deserves its own episode. Um, but basically, there's no way that's never going to not be a black mark on his resume. But that shouldn't be a discredit to Bagley. Uh, and if we come back to the present day, I think this trade was a low-risk and medium-to-high-reward transaction for the Pistons, who are not necessarily obligated to even keep him after this season. Uh, we're talking about a team that has been at the bottom of the standings all year. They had just drafted Cade Cunningham, who looks fantastic and is a front runner for rookie of the year if it's not Evan Mobley um, so he's a franchise piece and then you add Bagley in I'm not saying Bagley is a franchise piece but he could turn into one given that he should be playing more minutes now in Detroit for this uh, you know it's kind of a pushover team they're just going to play the young guys they're going to develop their young guys and Bagley has a good chance to fit in on that type of team now like I said the Pistons aren't obligated to keep him. If Detroit extends to him the qualifying offer, uh, which can be anywhere from 7 to $14 million, depending on incentives, uh, he will be a restricted free agent in the offseason. As a restricted free agent, Detroit can decide what to do with him if another team tries to pick him up at any given price. Uh, the Pistons can match the contract offer, and that means they retain him, or they can just let him go and not match, and then Bagley goes to another team. Um, but all this is to say I still have a healthy amount of Marvin Bagley stock for one reason or another. Uh, we're talking about a 22-year-old who still has untapped potential. We could be talking about an all-star if all the right things fall in place for him. Um, he still has a good motor, and he gets after it on the boards. He has a nice shooting touch extending to the three-point line, and I know the numbers don't necessarily reflect that he's a deep-shot threat, but he should be respected regardless. And if he's given the reps and the opportunity to grow his confidence, which I think has been shot with the injuries and the way that he, like I said, had been lumped into the same conversation with Luka Doncic all the time, uh, that type of pressure to perform as a number two overall pick can be burdensome. So getting out from underneath that, I think will benefit Detroit and will also benefit Sacramento in a, a strange way. We'll talk about that later in the podcast. Um, but I think Bagley in the modern NBA... He's a big man with a combination of size and speed, as well as skill in the paint. And those three things are at a premium. And based on that alone, I think he will continue to attract attention from teams around the league. If it's not in Detroit, it will be somewhere else. I believe in Marvin, and I'm rooting for Bagley to get it together. Okay, so now it's time for the three losers and the three winners that I've picked here from the trade deadline. We'll start with the losers. Um, at number three, the Wizards and the Mavericks will tie here. Um, they've exchanged financial burdens 
Uh, this one was a real head scratcher for me. So the Mavs picked up a shell of himself guard in Spencer Dinwiddie, who was coming off of knee surgery in the offseason prior. Uh, he was traded to Washington early in the season. He actually looked pretty decent, but since then he's really regressed. Um, if I remember correctly, he missed a number of games and then he came back. He just didn't look like the same player. And the Mavs also picked up uh, a no three and no D specialist, Davis Bertans. So Dinwiddie and Bertans combining for roughly $34 million a year combined. Uh, very, very strange stuff. The Wizards, on the other hand, picked up the injury-prone unicorn, Kristaps Porzingis. Look, any way you slice this, honestly, it's a very baffling trade from both perspectives. I did expect the Wizards to make moves, uh, as I had posted on my Instagram feed, or on the Macroball podcast Instagram feed, I should say. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie, first of all, for the Wizards, uh, was expected to be shopped. And, like, the fact that he's been traded is not surprising. But I don't understand why they would settle for a player as mediocre as Porzingis. Because just because you can't get a good return for Dinwiddie, you can package him with other nice pieces you have. The Wizards, in a different deal, they traded Montrez Harrell to the Hornets. Uh, and again, it wasn't really great return for that. But Dinwiddie plus Harrell should have attracted some attention as a combination. Maybe even the Wizards involved in some sort of three or four way deal. Uh, it doesn't seem like a lot of effort went into this trade. Obviously, I'm assuming, uh, I'm sure a fair amount of phone calls happened and sort of uh, looking at the roster and trying to figure out how they can properly reconfigure things at this stage. But Dinwiddie and Bertons for Porzingis is a really weird deal. Uh, and like I said, I don't know why they would settle for a player as mediocre as Przingis, unless, of course, the Wizards are aiming to continue being mediocre, which is fair enough. Uh, it's basically been the franchise's credo for the last 20 years, so why change? So at number two, I have the New York Knicks. Uh, they did make a trade, although it wasn't at the deadline, but they were a loser, and they were almost at number one because they did absolutely nothing else in a season that has been very close to catastrophic, if not catastrophic. So the first domino that fell this season was the Hawks and the Knicks exchanging Cam Reddish and Kevin Knox. Uh, I was legitimately, legitimately excited for this trade for the Knicks, possibly too excited. And as it turned out, Knicks head coach Tom Thibodeau was not excited at all. Uh, Reddish has barely played since the trade, which has been really strange. Tibbs went on record saying he didn't want to disrupt the lineups and rotations, trying to incorporate Reddish. And then another report came out that Tibbs didn't want the Knicks to trade for Reddish at all. Um, some sources said they think Reddish is too selfish or has too high of expectations for what his role should be on any given team, let alone on this Knicks team. I don't know Reddish, obviously, personally, but I chalk that up to confidence and self-belief. God forbid anyone ever shows that, especially as a young player who feels like they haven't had the chance to perform. The Knicks feel like a good platform for him to show off his talent and abilities, and he hasn't been given that opportunity. And so the more I read into this, and I look into the Tibbs side of this matter, it just sounds like an old man stuck in his ways, and he won't listen to reason. He doesn't want to change, and he will go down with his ship this way. The problem is, you have your lineups, okay? You like your consistency, you like camaraderie, you like the team to stay the way they are. That's kind of the way you've done it at every stop you've had, whether that's in Chicago, it's in Minnesota, and now it's in New York. You have your starting lineup that's set. You have your bench. Fair enough. 
but they don't seem to be working very well. Um, you've had controversy earlier in the season where you had to bench Kemba Walker, and then he came back and he was on fire for about a week, which was really weird. And then since then, we haven't really heard much from Walker, either verbally or on the court. But my point is, if it's not working, you should probably try something different. I'm just saying. But that's the thing. Thibodeau, like I said, seems very stuck in his ways. Uh, and it hasn't benefited anybody. We've seen flashes of the Knicks playing well. RJ Barrett had a few good games. We did see him hit that uh, huge game winner against the Celtics where he banked it in. That was exciting. But the other part of this is the Julius Randle scenario, um, which again is something that probably deserves its own episode. But he has been so up and down and so acting so weird where, you know, he's pushing the assistant coach away with the laptop. He's standing away from huddles. Uh, he's kind of isolating himself. He's talking to the crowd in New York negatively. Um, it's just been a weird 180 from somebody who seemed to be beloved by the Knicks fans and home crowd in New York to now someone who they would like to get rid of. I don't know if that's the fickle nature of New York fans, but from my perspective as a secondary Knicks fan, uh, it's really strange overall. The way he's acted has been hard to explain. So a kind person to me would say the Knicks have been inconsistent this year. A diehard Knicks fan would say this team is dog shit. They've had some decent moments, like I said, but it's been really tough to watch and support. And the weird thing is, this team had so many more moves to make after they traded for Reddish. There were a lot of rumors that basically everybody on the team was available, except maybe Obi Toppin. But I'm sure even he could be had at the right price. Uh, as I said, there were Julius Randle's rumors swirling. And RJ Barrett was probably even on the table, even though he's probably their best asset. Um, but at the same time, I guess consistency reigns in New York and they want to stick together and they want to see this through. Um, we'll see what happens in New York. It's going to be a weird second half of the season, I'm sure. And at number one, the biggest loser at the trade deadline is everybody's favorite train wreck, the Lakers, because they did absolutely nothing. Now, it wasn't necessarily surprising that they did nothing um, because they had very, very, very little roster flexibility. Um, however, there were some rumors about Westbrook maybe being flipped to Houston for John Wall, uh, which is an absolute comedy of an idea. Although with today's contracts, like I said, it's very difficult to make things work in a lot of scenarios and the lack of flexibility for the Lakers, probably that type of trade wasn't out of the question. Um, but honestly, this Lakers team is like a car crash you can't look away from. I've spent a fair amount of time covering this disaster in previous episodes. But ultimately, I guess the front office decided they had no good moves to make. Um, on the whole, this Lakers team has a lot of work to do. They don't seem to have any chemistry that really fits on the court. We've had to see LeBron James playing center for stretches of the season. We've had to see Anthony Davis come back probably ahead of schedule to try to salvage some of these teams they're playing and get some wins. And we've had to see, like Stanley Johnson has had to come in and be a savior for the team as a wing player that can defend multiple positions. That was something that was from day one of the offseason, or I should say from day one of the season itself after the offseason. They didn't have any depth there. They had Trevor Ariza, who's over the hill in an understatement and they had really nothing else so 
Stanley Johnson has made a huge difference in this team, but that's my point. If Stanley Johnson is your savior, what is going on? The Lakers had moves to make. They did absolutely nothing. And now we have to sit here and watch this car crash continue to happen. Um, the car is still rolling. We don't know if it's going to end up in a ditch. We don't know if it's going to land back on its wheels and keep driving down the highway en route to another crash. Um, but it doesn't look good in Los Angeles. One of the funniest parts was just prior to the trade deadline, we saw that clip where Westbrook was trying to cheer up LeBron and Davis on the, on the bench. And neither of them were, were really acknowledging what he had to say. I think that spelled out exactly what I'm talking about with chemistry on this team. They're not on the same page. It's just an awkward fit on the whole. And uh, I'm, I'm here for this disaster, but it's just really tough to watch. Okay, so I'd like to get some positivity back in the building here. So I have the three winners of the trade deadline. At least three, the top three, I should say. Uh, starting at number three, the Los Angeles Clippers. They fortified an already talented roster, basically, and they gave themselves a fair shot at making a playoff run here. Now, this trade basically gives the Clippers, and more specifically the Kawhi-Paul George combo, incentive to actually make a playoff push and possibly for those two to make a strong effort to return in time for the postseason. I don't know if plugging them in, uh, that... I mean, Kawhi and Paul George, uh, plugging them in is not necessarily the easiest thing to do at such a pivotal juncture of the season, but they're not going to avoid trying. And it would be interesting to see if they did come back because that takes them from a, a B-plus team, they've performed really well in their absence, to an A-plus championship contender, just like that. Um, even without those two, like I said, that's a B-plus team. This trade offers the team additional depth. Now Norm Powell gets to go back to a championship contender where he is going to be a vital piece to this team, especially on offense. Uh, I think Powell's defense has slipped in recent years as he's grown as an offensive player. Um, but his offensive versatility, not just catch and shoot like Lawrence Frank said, but his ability to create off the dribble in tight spots and then sometimes dunk on people's heads, I think that's a really important part to this team as a release valve of sorts sometimes for the offense. Um, when Kawhi and Paul George are being played uh, really well on defense, if you pass the ball to Powell, he's not afraid to take a play or make a play himself, I should say. Um, and I think it's just a great pickup for them. And like I said, they also picked up uh, Robert Covington. So he adds a type of defensive versatility that this team has become identifiable with, where they have guys like Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Marcus Morris, Nicholas Batum, it goes on, these type of multi-dimensional wing players that can actually defend centers at times. Uh, Covington is a fantastic pickup for this team. Um, I just really like the fact that they continue to add depth. They've made all the right moves, in my opinion, since they've brought in Kawhi Leonard. They've really done all they can to maximize the roster and try to win a championship. That's obviously their number one goal here. Um, with those guys injured, I feel like chances are obviously really slim but they're still going to be a competitive team. But if Kawhi and Paul George make their return this season, they are a team to keep an eye on. If they're a lower seed, they're going to present massive problems for any given team that they play. At number two, I have the New Orleans Pelicans as the second best winner of the trade deadline because they added an excellent backcourt player to 
pair with their fantastic front court. Um, I just really like CJ McCollum on this team. Uh, he's a combo guard that plays a very malleable style. He's able to blend in with other players and play both on and off the ball effectively, as we saw him do in Portland alongside Damian Lillard. I think he's generally a no-nonsense and very productive player. And I think that bodes well for a team like the Pelicans, who have a pretty good roster as is, but they needed to add some stability in the backcourt. And McCollum's leadership qualities should go a long way on this team. I think that's something they've missed in the backcourt since they lost Drew Holiday. Um, and even since they lost Lonzo Ball, the way he played the game, I think that was vital to the team's success. But McCollum should bring back some of the good times in the backcourt. Um, at the moment, the Pelicans currently sit outside the play-in tournament, but there's a lot of basketball left to be played, and I think this team has a strong chance of making at least the play-in tournament, if not making the playoffs, ultimately. On an unfortunate note, as part of their deals at the uh, trade deadline, Larry Nance Jr. had opted to have surgery on his right knee, so we'll need to wait and see the impact he could have on this team. I think he could have played a vital role off the bench for the Pelicans, but that remains to be seen. Uh, with that said, this team is ready to make a run at the playoffs with or without Zion Williamson. Um, that whole chestnut, we don't know what's going on there necessarily. They've kept their cards very close to their chest. Uh, the Pelicans have. And Zion, it's not like he's super active on social media explaining his comeback, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I hope he makes a return because he's one of the most exciting and impactful players we have in the NBA across the board at any position. And he could take the Pelicans to the next level if he makes his way back this season. Finally, the number one winner of the 2022 NBA trade deadline were the Philadelphia 76ers. And as a side winner, uh, Daryl Morey, because... The Sixers got rid of their Ben Simmons problem. Now, this was a bit of an unexpected roller coaster overall. Uh, I hadn't heard about this trade really until a few weeks ago. I hadn't thought it was really necessarily on the on the table. Um, I figured that the value for Ben Simmons was not as high as Daryl Morey was asking for, uh, but it's obvious that it was because they ended up getting James Harden of all players. So it was interesting, and I say roller coaster before because uh, we started not necessarily started all the rumors, but there was a lot of reporting from Brian Windhorst of ESPN that the offers and discussion between the Nets and the Sixers were on fire and things were really flying back and forth. Meanwhile, Woj, who's considered probably the most reliable source in the game, basically said the negotiations did not seem credible and he didn't believe that was the case, that that was even happening. Now, whether or not ESPN was wanting these conflicting sources to generate drama and traffic. That's debatable. Um, but I just thought it was weird that Windhorst became the reliable source and Woj was kind of like the incorrect source. It was it was really strange. Um, but nonetheless, Woj had a few tweets before the deadline as things wound down that basically along the lines, Harden wanted to play for the 76ers, but he wasn't willing to disclose that publicly for fear of the backlash he might encounter. And then he had another tweet, basically that Maury and Sean Marks, the Nets GM, had gone back and forth with demands, counter offers, etc. So he became more aligned with Brian Windhorse. And finally, the Nets settled on James Harden and Paul Millsap for Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, and Andre Drummond. Now, 
there are a lot of angles to cover on this trade, um, but because this is a winner's uh, segment for the 76ers, I'll just cover that bit. I will say, I do think Ben Simmons is still an impactful player. No, he hasn't played NBA professional basketball for many months. I think he has a chance to return to form and he should regain his confidence given that he's going to a fresh start in Brooklyn. And I think Seth Curry is a perpetually underrated wing and floor spacer that should be valuable in that Nets lineup alongside the likes of Simmons, Durant, Kyrie Irving, even Patty Mills, who's been solid for them. Um, and even with the addition of Drummond, I think Drummond is going to play a vital role as a big man on this team, something they haven't really had a traditional big in certain lineups against certain teams. Even with the amount of assets that the Nets gave up to get James Harden last year and the general circumstances surrounding the team at the moment, I don't think you can call Brooklyn a loser here. They're definitely a winner of the trade deadline as well, although they didn't crack my top three. Um, but I can definitely call the 76ers a winner because first of all, they shed the Ben Simmons drama. So that shouldn't be in the question anymore. And they also added a former MVP who is still in their prime. Can't stress enough how impressive of a trade this was. Even more incredible to me, uh, as this was reported by Shams, as part of the deal, James Harden opted in to his $47.3 million player option on his contract for next season. Now, I find this incredible because most assumed he would opt out and go for a longer contract. So absolute worst case scenario here for the 76ers. They get a flyer of sorts on James Harden. If that's not working, they should be able to trade him again for solid value uh, with an expiring contract that is James Harden. There would be another team out there, I'm sure, that would be interested in him if it came to that. But that's all hypothetical, of course. And it's more likely this trade works wonders for Philly. Uh, I'll leave the breaking down of the playmaking and the fit on the roster for another podcast or another YouTube channel. Uh, but I'll just say this is straight out of Daryl Morey's playbook. And it's brilliant. The 76ers got two superstars and they want to just figure out the rest on the fly. I think that model should be fine. It should work for them. Embiid is a front runner for MVP right now. Ahead of Jokic, in my opinion, by a slim margin. And by adding James Harden, I think they're going from a Porsche 911 to a Maserati. I think this team is ready to take off. The 76ers not only have a chance to take the East this season, but also win multiple championships if everybody's healthy. I think they have nice pieces around those top two. Tobias Harris leaves a lot to be desired on most nights, but the likes of Tyrese Maxey, Matisse Thibel, even Paul Reed, these are really nice pieces off the bench and on the team. Maxi will probably start, but these are really nice pieces around the top two. And I just think this team is fantastic. They're in a fantastic position now, considering everything that just happened with Ben Simmons, the ugly playoff exits, all the drama, the process, etc., etc. It seems like the process is rounding into form and we're entering a different period of the team. It seems like we're exiting the process as it's been virtually completed. Now, just two fun facts here to end this segment on. Number one, Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving only played 16 games together total. In those 16 games, they went 13 and three. You can take away what you want from that. 
I think that's incredible. The second fact, and more importantly, the Brooklyn Nets travel to Philadelphia to play the 76ers on March 10th. We don't know if Ben Simmons will be back to play that game, but you should definitely get your popcorn ready just in case, because if he's there and if he's playing, you will see and hear some of the loudest boos we've ever heard, or at least since LeBron returned to Cleveland in 2010-2011. It's going to be a spectacle. That shit is hot. Oh, it's hot. Hold on. Let me get my composure real quick. Anybody got some milk? <laughs> okay, it's time for another spicy take of the week. And this time around, I wanted to basically say the sky is not falling in Sacramento. Now, the headline is definitely going to be WTF, they traded Halliburton. It's fun and easy to jump on the bandwagon of this, I understand. It should go without saying in most cases, you would want to keep a player like Tyrese Halliburton instead of trading him. And most teams would have tried very, very hard to keep him on their team. But do not overlook the following facts. The Kings added the best player in that trade, DeMontis Sabonis, to their team. They got rid of Buddy Heald, who was always seemingly unhappy with his subdued role on the team. They got out from under their signature draft mistake in Marvin Bagley, a situation that was unfortunately bringing a lot of pressure on both him and the franchise for him to be the superstar they expected when they drafted him second overall. And they also brought in Dante DiVincenzo, who's a 25-year-old combo guard who should ultimately find his way into the starting lineup on this team. So, despite losing Halliburton, we covered all that ground as well. This team has actually come out better. They look like a, a better team on the other side of this very strange and very shocking trade. But I think they have a plan here. And that's surprising when you talk about it, because it's Sacramento. This is a team that's notoriously not had a plan for nearly two decades. But first of all, let me just go over this properly. Despite giving up their best young player and best asset overall, they added an elite big man that is a massive improvement to their front court. That's DeMontis Sabonis. I was actually happy Sabonis was freed from Rick Carlisle's offense, where he was woefully misused and clearly unhappy with his role in Indiana. I don't know what was going on there, but it was really strange to see Sabonis kind of regress the way he had. Um, but nonetheless, Sabonis should open up the Kings offense to not be so pick and roll heavy and instead add some variety with high post passing and backdoor cutting for the guards and wings. Uh, Sabonis sees the floor as well as almost any big man in the league, this side of Nikola Jokic. I've said many times, I think DeMontis Sabonis is like Jokic light. Um, he's not definitely not at Jokic's level in a lot of ways, but he's very close and he's along the same lines as a player. Now, the obvious trade for the Kings to try to make was to attempt to offload De'Aaron Fox, their point guard. Um, but at the same time, uh, coming in at roughly $33 million a year for the next four seasons, his contract relative to value is not great at this stage. Um, but we can only assume there was a limited amount of interest in shipping him out and also getting a nice return. It was probably the, the market for Fox probably wasn't as strong as it could have been in other years. Um, but at this trade deadline, 
That was the move that everybody was calling for. Maybe a deal including Fox and Bagley. Um, but at the end of the day, it just didn't happen. So this non-trade could be viewed as a vote of confidence by the Kings front office for Fox and rookie Davion Mitchell, who was kind of the odd man out in a lot of lineups given the glut of players they held in the backcourt. That includes Halliburton and Heald, who are now gone. Uh, but with Sabonis able to facilitate from different spots on the court, I expect to see Fox and Mitchell and DiVincenzo, who I mentioned earlier, involved in much more action, off the ball, cutting, and just running around. They're both both very fast players, and Sabonis should be able to find them anywhere on the court. Now, the Kings are basically being counted out by default at this point because they traded Halliburton. Like I said, the headline is, why did they do that? Um, but I'm rooting for them to turn it around with Sabonis at the helm. I think they will, without a doubt, make other moves in the offseason to improve around Sabonis, Fox, and the like. Uh, but they have breathed some fresh air into a very stale season, and their outlook is honestly pretty solid. The one thing Sacramento does need to be very careful about, more so than anything else, is who they hire as their next head coach. As of right now, their head coach is an interim coach. That's Alvin Gentry, who has seemingly coached every team in the NBA. Um, but keep this in mind, since 2006, this franchise has hired 10 different head coaches, which is by far the most in that stretch of any team in the league. Most recently, they fired Luke Walton after two and a half seasons, despite actually holding the best winning percentage of all of those 10. And I think it's been said many, many times, probably at nauseum, the turnover of coaches will not instill confidence in the fans, the players, or anyone in between. You have to find a formula and you have to stick to it. If you keep firing coaches, people are going to stop caring after a while. And it has gotten to that point in Sacramento where they need to find something substantial. And I have some suggestions. I think the best possible candidate for the head coaching job in Sacramento is going to be Kenny Atkinson, the former Nets head coach, who worked magic with a somewhat limited roster in the 2018-2019 season. But Atkinson was around for the development of the Nets. He built the team's young players into nice young pieces, obviously that led to them trading and moving on to the likes of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. But Kenny Atkinson would be a fantastic hire for this team. I think he has the right tools and the right game plans to make this roster work. Kenny Atkinson should be option number one. So that's about it for episode seven of the Macroball podcast. Although I did want to close this off with a quick and... Uh, interesting observation that I've seen in many, many different seasons. And it's just something to keep in mind going forward with the remaining 35 to or so games. Every season, we anticipate the trade deadline with a level of excitement and probably a little bit of anxiety, uh, similar to a wedding day or a first date. And once the climax of the deadline passes, there's a phenomenon that goes through most teams in the league. Um, I don't have a name for it. But the players, the front offices, etc. experience a tension or pressure, pressure release and most teams come away with a better sense of clarity and confidence. Probably because you don't have to worry about being traded anymore for the rest of the season. The teams and front offices have decided what the roster is going to be, at least until June, July, August. 
and you get to relax a little bit more as a player on a given team and focus on the rest of the season. No matter what your situation is, good or bad, things are kind of set in stone for a little while, and that allows you to focus more. I bring this up because after this all, all-star break, we're going to see levels of play intensify for those teams in the play-in range and also the high seed range as well as teams jockey for position in the playoffs. Uh, we're also going to see some players break out for the last few weeks of the year on tanking teams as they're given the green light to shoot the orange off the basketball. Um, but all I ask is to take some of these performances with a grain of salt Um I believe a lot of these performances are rooted in that tension release. And now that they can focus on basketball, we're going to see some inflated stats, but we're also going to see some performances improve. Maybe even Russell Westbrook, who knows crazier things have happened, Uh, but stay tuned. I think it's going to be a fantastic close to the NBA season and there's a lot more action to come, but that's going to be it for today. Signing off for the Macroball podcast. Bye now. Oh, 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 oh,